I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. Glad to have you in with us in this hour. Uh, what if I told you that the FBI is responsible for more terrorism plots in the United States than Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, and ISIS combined? Would you believe me? Well, you ain't got to believe me in this hour conversation with contributing writer for The Intercept, Trevor Aronson, about what he calls the FBI's manufactured war on terrorism. Trevor, good to have you in. How are you today, sir? I'm great, Tavis. Thanks for having me. My great honor. Uh, thank you for the time. Glad we've got an hour. There's a whole lot to unpack in this hour about what you've written in this book uh, called The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. So I started with that with that tease to our audience. I, I mentioned this at the top of the first hour of, our today, uh, of today's program, um, whether or not they'd believe me if I told them that the FBI is responsible for more terrorism plots inside of our country than al-Qaeda, al-Shabaab, and ISIS combined. Um, the answer to that question, obviously, uh, is detailed in, in your text. Let me start with that. It's a tease, but unpack that for me. Yeah, I know it's a, I know it's a provocative statement, right? This idea that the FBI is responsible for more terrorism plots than any of these terrorist organizations. Uh, but it's true and it's borne out in the data in the 20 years since 9-11. And, and the reason for that is that the FBI after 9-11 took on a very aggressive stance to find would-be terrorists, to find people who maybe are on that line, ready to cross over from sympathizer to operator, and they would put together elaborate sting operations with undercover informants or undercover agents providing everything someone needs to commit an act of terrorism, the idea, the money, the transportation, and, of course, the weapon, like a bomb or a rifle or a surface-to-air missile. The FBI provides everything. The person then moves forward with the crime and then is arrested by the FBI, announced to the public as another terrorism plot foiled, and, you know, since 9-11, we've had more than 350 defendants caught up in terrorism stings like this compared to, you know, the number of actual terrorism plots since 9-11, which you can, you know, count on, count using both of your hands. And so the overwhelming majority of these cases that have been traded out to the public as a terrorism plot foiled were really the work of the FBI manufacturing the circumstances under which that was able to happen. And your, your view, your opinion of that strategy, for lack of a better word, uh, is what? Trevor Aarons. So ultimately what the FBI would say is that they use these tactics in order to do two things. One, to you know, prevent a real al-Qaeda or ISIS operative from providing the bomb that they otherwise would in, in their sting operation. And two, to create what's termed a hostile environment for terrorism so that someone acting in the United States might be unwilling to work with someone for fear that that person is an undercover government agent. But the truth is that if you look at these cases, there has yet to be a single one where someone incapable of terrorism on their own is provided with the means by a real terrorist, such as a Al-Qaeda or ISIS representative. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, you know, what we've seen in case after case post 9-11 is that most of the real terrorist plots that have existed have involved people who are working alone. So the idea that this would create a hostile environment that would inhibit terrorism isn't really you know, supported by mm -hmm. what we what has been a real threat since then. And so in that view, in my view, what I would say is that what this is most effective at is kind of justifying these large budgets that the FBI has post 9-11 for counterterrorism, because these sting operations present a very convenient way for them to go to the public and go to Congress and say, look, we foiled a terrorist. Here's how all your money was spent. And in, in that way, and I know that's a cynical viewpoint, 
but you know that really is shown in, in when you look at closely at these cases since nine eleven. Now that you started to unpack this, and I say started because again we got the whole hour to uh, to uh, delve into this, and I, I look forward to the rest of this hour. But now that you started to peel back the layers of this, <clears throat> I'm wondering whether or not you think. Um, and again, there's no scientific data unless you know something I don't know, which is certainly possible. Uh, I wonder whether or not you think um, the American public writ large, you think that everyday people, as Sly Stone might say, everyday people in this country really care. Does it really matter to them? that the FBI is sort of curating, my word, not yours, curating these terrorist things if by any means necessary uh, they are keeping us from being hit again uh, from outside forces uh, in this uh, in this country? So I think in the, in the initial years, the initial decade after 9-11, a lot of the abuses that we saw in Muslim communities, such as the, the widespread infiltration of these communities with informants, you know, as an example, during COINTELPRO and J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI had 1,500 informants post 9-11 as a result of a huge push to increase the number of informants in Muslim communities. That number ballooned to more than 15,000. Mm. And in addition uh, to the large number of informants infiltrating Muslim communities, we saw the widespread use of these sting operations. And I think, you know, were it not for the, the kind of Islamophobic moment that we were in as a country in those years after 9-11, I think there would have been a lot more criticism of these types of tactics. But I think in many ways, the American public kind of made the deal that you just suggested, right? This idea that we're willing to, you know, look past some of these things that seem concerning if it means that it keeps us safer as a, as a nation. And I think we can say two things in, in hindsight. One is that I think it's highly questionable whether these tactics really kept us any safer, really stopped any, any acts of terrorism. Mm. And then secondly, you know, you, you fast forward 20 years to where we are today, and there's a large record now of these types of tactics being used elsewhere, being used against, you know, white-collar criminals, being used against um, drug traffickers and others that, you know, really kind of takes this beyond where it initially started. So we see widespread use of informants and undercover stings in these other cases. And I think what we begin to see, and, and you know, what, what we can also talk about later, of course, is, is how this was used against the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. Mm -hmm. You know, what we begin to see is that these tactics have kind of, grown to be accepted in the post 9-11 era as targeting Muslims, but now we see them being used against others as well. And I think Americans have been conditioned to some extent to think that this is proper use of, of law enforcement assets in this way. Yeah, that gives a, a, a whole new meaning to mission creep, does it not, Trevor? <laughs> mission creep. They start they started it for one they started these terrorist thing, uh, these terrorist stings for one purpose and now they're, they 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 literally start this uh, to track Al Qaeda and to track ISIS. And before you know it, there's mission creep and now they're using these same kind of tactics against BLM. You hear the point that Trevor's making, which I'm glad I have the hour to interrogate. We're talking to Trevor Aronson, uh, writer for The Intercept and author of the book The Terror Factory. Inside the FBI's manufactured war on terrorism, terrorism, so much more to get into when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. If ever there were a conversation that mattered, this one does. And I'm pleased to be a part of this conversation with our guest in this hour, uh, Trevor Aronson, who is contributing writer for The Intercept, author of the book The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism, and the host of a very, very popular podcast called Alphabet Boys. Uh, many of us uh, and many of my friends swear by uh, their podcast. It's called Alphabet Boys. You've not heard it. Uh, I invite you to check out that podcast once again called Alphabet Boys. Um, let me get, get straight away, uh, Trevor, into some things we were talking about, you were talking about, I should say, before before that break. I think I want to start with this. Um, I, I am, am, am never uh, uh, surprised, but always uh, shocked. <laughs> never surprised, but always shocked 
at the ways in which um, our government, um, particularly the FBI, uh, goes about abusing the privileges they have. I'm, and I'm being broad because I want to give you as much uh, canvas as you need to uh, to paint here. Um, I recall, many of us recall, after 9-11, that we put more teeth in the so-called Patriot Act. I always hated the fact that it was actually called the Patriot Act. That's not what patriotism is about, as far as I'm concerned. But we called it the Patriot Act. We put more teeth in it, more meat into it on the other side, on this side, I should say, of 9-11, which allowed the FBI and and other uh, government agencies to just run amok. Uh, let me just ask you a broad question. In what ways have we paid for um, this uh, overnight uh, uh, effort to give uh, government agencies everything they wanted, all they asked for, and then some in the name of rooting out terrorism. Right. Thanks for that question. I, I think it's important to remember, you know, one of the one of the central findings of the 9-11 report was that the, the primary reason that they missed a lot of the warning signs was that there was inadequate intelligence sharing among the various federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies, that there was a kind of culture of competition such that had that not existed and there there had been greater cooperation, we, we may have been able to prevent at least parts of 9-11 or stop some of the hijackers from moving forward. That was mm-hmm. the conclusion of the 9-11 report. At the same time, though, the FBI and other federal law enforcement agencies used 9-11 as an opportunity to say it wasn't just, you know, that we didn't share collection, it's that we didn't have enough powers to investigate this new threat of terrorism and we need you to give us all of these new powers, Congress. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get into the USA Patriot Act. And, and what that allowed for was a, a number of expansions of FBI powers that, that really put into question uh, American civil liberties. You know, what we know of, for example, you know, from the, the Snowden documents is that the FBI, working with the NSA, started the largest mass surveillance program known to, to mankind at that point. At the same time, the FBI got what was called a, an assessment power. And what that means is that traditionally, prior to 9-11, the FBI needed what's termed a criminal predicate to, to launch an investigation. And a criminal predicate just means a reasonable basis to believe that someone is committing a crime. Mm-hmm. But the FBI said, well, in the post-9-11 era, we can't afford to have that because what if someone calls us and says, without any more information than this, my neighbor is a terrorist and he has a bomb. We need to go check that out. And so the assessment allows the FBI to investigate just about anyone for, for any reason so long as, as the FBI agent can articulate that it, 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 it is in the national security interest for the FBI to investigate this. And what we've seen is the expansion of these assessment powers being used uh, to launch investigations where there is not a criminal predicate, where, you know, for example, we've seen the, the investigations of political activists being launched based on assessment powers and, and nothing more than, n- no more evidence than the political activists using First Amendment protected activity, you know, speech that is incendiary, but is nonetheless protected by free speech rights. We're seeing the FBI launch investigations based on that. And so these powers that had traditionally been meant to find the would-be bomber are are still on the books and are now kind of have been expanded. And you see the FBI using them in ways that I don't believe Congress intended when these powers were granted. At the same time, what's, what's critically important to understand as well is that as the FBI received all of these powers in the post-9-11 era, there really has not been what I would argue is adequate oversight from Congress on how the FBI operates and acts using these powers, in large part because I think it's been hard for congressional representatives to be tough on the FBI 
for fear that they go back to their home district to be reelected, mm-hmm. and their 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 candidate, their, their competitor, can say, "Well, well, look at the incumbent; he's weak on terrorism, or she's weak on terrorism." No one. It's a politically kind of fraught area, and as a result, I, I believe the FBI has has had, a, has had a pass over the last two decades, and as a result, we're really seeing you know a backsliding in the FBI that that is in some ways reminiscent of the abuses that we saw under J. Edgar Hoover. I want to talk, I want to discuss that backsliding here in just a second. Uh, put a pin in that. Uh, before I do that, though, um, it just seems to me, and you know this stuff better than I do, but I've been at this a, a while now. Uh, I have never seen in, in my in my lifetime of uh, being a broadcaster uh, where you see powers get rolled back, even even if <clears throat> even if and when civil liberties are being violated once those powers are given they, they, they don't they don't they don't roll them back trevor to your point because then you get seen as being soft on on terrorism soft on crime and anti uh, uh fbi anti-cia anti-government exactly I, I think that's exactly what's happened in the post 11 era with these with these powers i mean obviously it's it's every it's in every agency's interest to maintain its budget maintain its power so they're going to put forward whatever narrative they need to in order to justify the maintenance of yeah. the budget and the powers. And it's really up to Congress to have the political will to, to pull some of this back. And yeah. what, we, what we've seen is that that's, that's not been the case. And as you put very, very accurately, you know, this isn't, uh, th- this isn't only affecting terrorism powers and terrorism cases. This is also, you know, you know we, we've seen the similar abuses of powers related to crime since the passage of the crime bill and even before then. Yeah. So when you suggested a moment ago that, uh, as you see it, as your research uh, suggests to you, that the FBI has been backsliding. Unpack that for me. It's 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 a it's a it's a powerful phrase. But to unpack what you mean when you say the FBI has been backsliding. Yeah. So if you go back and look at what the FBI did during COINTELPRO or the counterintelligence program that that Hoover launched in um, that was primarily in the 1960s and 1970s, you know what this program specifically did was target uh, political activists. Uh, you know, Hoover was concerned about what he termed subversive elements to American society. Mm-hmm. But subversive elements to American society really meant anti-war groups, the American Indian movement, and most prominently black political groups, such as the Black Panther Party and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s organization. And, and what Hoover did was insert informants into these organizations, not only to investigate crimes and at times try to gin up crimes, but really to provide information back to the FBI about who these political activists were, and then also trying to undermine these very organizations by having the informants who are inserted accuse other real activists and real leaders of being informants themselves, a practice known as snitch jacketing. Mm -hmm. And this had a devastating effect, most specifically on the Black Panther Party, uh, where the FBI was going in and basically sowing discord among the activists. And, and what we report in our new podcast, Alphabet Boys, is that the FBI in Denver, Colorado, in the summer of 2020, did exactly that, that they hired an informant who infiltrated the racial justice movement in Denver based solely on First Amendment protected activity. He reported that an activist was using incendiary rhetoric, like, we need to burn this city down. And that was enough to launch this investigation, again, based on the assessment power that the FBI had post 9-11. And what this informant did was he tried to, uh, he, or not tried to, he accused real leaders of being informants, and that caused confusion and created a leadership vacuum that he then filled. And he encouraged the protests in Denver that were otherwise peaceful to become violent. And he was also, just as we saw in post-9-11 terrorism things, trying to entrap black activists in crime. So the, the, 
the, the crime he tried to, to put them put together was a, was a supposed assassination of Colorado's attorney general. He was unsuccessful in making that happen, uh, but it shows you the ambition of the FBI in creating a plot that they could wrap black activists in and then announce to the public a, a violent plot, a yeah. plot foiled. And so what we see is, is very much a backsliding of the FBI's behavior that's very reminiscent of COINTELPRO, but is a result really of power, post-9-11 powers that have been expanded and left unchecked. And as you put the word, the mission creep that happens. And, and that's where we are today. You know, some people have compared this to a COINTELPRO 2.0. Yeah. And to a certain extent, that's, that's kind of true. But I think we need really need to understand the context that this really comes out of the war on terror more than anything else. Yeah. Um, to, to what extent do you think um, that BLM protest, uh, we've all witnessed these protests. Many of us have participated in these protests. The whole world protested uh, after the murder of George Floyd. But to what extent do you think the FBI has, in fact, infiltrated BLM protests with informants? And I want to talk more broadly about the burgeoning number, the growth of these uh, 15,000 you mentioned. I want to talk about why so many people are becoming informants. We'll come to that in a second. But but, but to what extent do you think BLM's protests have, in fact, been in, infiltrated by um, FBI informants? You know, as I'm sure you know, and as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, it was it was kind of a common uh, thing to hear during that summer among activists that there were suspicious people coming into their groups, coming into their movement. There were people that were you were like, well, is that person maybe an informant? People who were encouraging violence. So the total number of informants that were that the FBI used to infiltrate the racial justice movement isn't something that's yet known. But what we can say is that the FBI did that specifically in Denver, and then they also, in our reporting, we were able to show that they used an undercover agent in the same capacity in Colorado Springs. So I think it's, it's more likely that this was a national program mm -hmm. than the idea that this was somehow anomalous to um, Colorado. At the same time, I think it's important to put into context that in 2017, during the first year of the Trump administration, the FBI had come out with a paper in which it defined a new category of domestic extremism or domestic terrorism called black identity extremism. Mm. And, and what the FBI did was it was say that post-Ferguson, Missouri, um, that, that black activists had become radicalized and that they were more likely to target police for violence and even murder. The, the evidence supporting that was incredibly thin. It, it involved six cases of black Americans committing violence against police officers that had no connection with one another. But yet this is what the FBI used to define this idea of black identity extremism. And so I, I think there, I would argue that there was a predisposition, both historically in the Bureau, but then more recently during the Trump administration as a result of the black identity extremism label, that there was a predisposition to see black political activity as potentially violent and as such a national security concern. And so I, I think it's reasonable to assume that, you know, there were informants perhaps throughout the nation um, during the summer of 2020. One of our hopes in revealing what we do in Alphabet Boys is that we hope that more people will come forward. Maybe more information will come forward to show the scale of this um, surveillance during that during that summer. Uh, let me let me uh, pick up on your word scale because they've uh, they've certainly scaled this up. Um, the, the the burgeoning growth of the number of FBI informants in this country is arresting for me, and I didn't realize that till I started interrogating and your work and getting prepared for this conversation today. But but what's that about? Why is the number of FBI informants growing so dramatically and so swiftly? So, the, so officially what the FBI will argue is, of course, that informants are critical to understanding what's happening in communities, bring information back to the FBI so that it can build cases and understand how, how crime is, is working. Right. And, and I, I say all this to say that there is a legitimate use of informants. You know, 
Um, at, at the same time, though, what we've seen is a huge expansion of the number of informants, so much so that in late 2000s, the, the FBI had to go to Congress and ask for more than a million dollars to fund a software program that allows the FBI to uh, basically coordinate and catalog its many, more than 15,000 informants. This program is called Delta, and it allows kind of an efficient use of uh, organizing these informants. And then the other thing that, I, that, that informants are useful, which is not something the FBI likes to talk about, is informants increasingly play the role that I think most Americans think of as the role of the undercover agent. You know, if you look at like FBI movies like Donnie Brasco, for example, mm -hmm. and, and how the FBI is portrayed in culture, there's this perception that well-trained FBI agents are the ones going undercover and working these cases. Increasingly today, that is not the case, that we see more often than not that informants are used in undercover capacities, allowing the agents to kind of sit back and allow the informant to do the work. This has, this has two object objectives. One is that informants may be better able to play the part than the, um, than the undercover agent. But importantly for the FBI, it gives them a sense of deniability that the, the informant may be able to act in ways that would be illegal for an agent. And if they get called to the carpet on that, the FBI can more easily say, well, look, this guy's an informant. You know, he was acting outside of our mandate or what we, he said he should. And so they get a, a sense of deniability in what they what they do. Um, and, and I think that's the more cynical view that the FBI would have in why it uses these informants that such as in the case of Denver during the summer of 2020, they could insert this informant and have him encourage violence. And if they ever get called on called before Congress or before a judge to say, you know, why was this informant, you know, inciting violence, they could say, well, we didn't instruct him to do that, yeah. which obviously is a lot harder to do if you're using an undercover agent. Yeah. And, and that said, I think the, un, you know, the important thing to point out as well is the, the finances that are involved. What we see increasingly, especially in the use of informants, is that informants will encourage people to commit crimes, even if it means dragging them across that line to commit the crime, because they have a direct incentive in money. You know, if you are an informant and you go into the community and you're looking for crime and you come back to the FBI and say, hey, I didn't find anything, you're going to stop getting paid. Mm. So these informants have a direct financial incentive to facilitate and even encourage crime to happen. Um, and and these, these financial rewards are, are quite handsome. You know, informants who are working for the FBI can earn in excess of $100,000 per year. And so they have a direct incentive <laughs> to make these crimes happen. I'm laughing and not because it's funny, but I'm, I'm laughing because now, now I get the answer to my question. Why are there more informants? Cause they're paying them a hundred grand a year. I understand why the number of informants uh, is increasing so dramatically. And on the list of things you just said that these uh, informants are incentivized to do, let me just add lie. If I'm making a hundred thousand dollars a year uh, for going back and giving you information, I will lie if I have to, to get my paycheck, uh, have you run me my coins, uh, it raises all kinds of questions that I have now, even more questions about uh, this informant profile. I, I know that there's no way we would ever get from the FBI an informant profile, but I'm curious as to what Trevor Aronson thinks, given his research, of what a typical uh, informant uh, to the FBI looks like. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. What would that profile be? Uh, I want to just probe that with, with, with Trevor Aronson when we come forward. And a great deal more to talk about regarding his book, The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. Uh, you're listening to KBLA Talk 15. Our guest this hour is Trevor Aronson, journalist and author uh, of the book, the, uh, the Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism, also uh, the host of the very popular podcast, Alphabet Boys. And I want to just pivot just for a second here, Trevor, because I know you all have discussed this uh, ad infinitum 
uh, on your podcast and uh, in your work at The Intercept, where you are also a contributing writer. Uh, it was, in fact, three years ago today, believe it or not, three years ago today that Breonna Taylor was murdered in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, and uh, since that time, of course, and actually uh, uh, just a few days prior to, to now, uh, we have uh, learned more about uh, the Louisville Police Department and the ways in which they misbehave in the city of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, don't want to color this question much more than that, uh, but just uh, I thought I'd give you a chance to say a word uh, about Breonna Taylor and um, uh, given that this is the third anniversary of her of her murder. Yeah, I mean, you know, hers was a string of, of high-profile deaths that we heard about at the hands of police. I think, you know, what's interesting, I, I think, in the context of these larger cases and you know, even what we, you know, if you look in Memphis with Tyree Nichols more recently, you know, I think it's a good lesson that the initial word that comes out from the police isn't necessarily something we should take as, as gospel, that this is exactly as it happened, because we are seeing consistently in these cases that the descriptions that the FBI, or that the local police describe in, in these situations ends up being very different from the reality of the, of the crime. Um, or of the of the killing of the shooting, and I think that's exactly what happened in in uh, Brianna Taylor's case. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. Just wanted to make sure we uh, wove in um, some commentary about her um, in this hour, given that today again is the third anniversary uh, of the murder of Brianna Taylor in Louisville. And uh, again, if you've not um, seen that report or read about it, uh, just Google it um, and learn uh, a great deal more about the ways in which this police department has just been out of control for quite some time. The ways in which they maltreat and disrespect. Uh, everyday people, fellow citizens in the city of Louisville. Uh, it was arresting to read it. I mean, you read the way they've sort of misbehaved um, for years now. It's no surprise, sadly, that what happened to Breonna Taylor uh, happened. But um, I encourage you to, to learn more about it uh, by just Googling Louisville Police Department, and you can surely find um, some details about this report that came out again some some days ago. Let me pivot now back to specifically um, uh, the FBI, another arm of law enforcement in this country, and this book from Trevor Aronson, The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. I was saying before news traffic and sports that it, it ain't like the FBI is going to ever come out and give us a list of who their informants are, but given that the number of these informants is growing so significantly. And given that many of them can make up to $100,000 a year for being an informant, uh, what would you guess to be uh, the informant profile uh, uh, of these persons the FBI relies on for information, uh, Trevor Aronson? Right. So there's no database that we can access of the identities of all 15,000 informants, obviously. But through these various cases, we've um, had a number of the informants be identified. And so we can kind of put together a profile of what an informant is like based on those. Mm, okay. and, and, you know, and this is something that's even re recognized within the FBI. There's an expression that you'll sometimes hear FBI agents use about informants, which is to catch the devil, you have to go to hell. Mm. And, and what they mean is that, you know, to find people that can insert themselves into criminal organizations, it, it's not going to be a choir boy, right? It's going to be someone who has a checkered past themselves. Um, and also is someone who is willing to betray relationships. Uh, a federal judge once described um, informants as being sociopathic. And, mm. and what he meant by that is that many of these informants are put into places where, as part of the investigation, they have to befriend the person that they're investigating over months and even years. And they have to know that as they're befriending him or this, him or her, this person, that, that ultimately they are going to put this person in prison for years, if not decades. And so, you know, in this judge's opinion, this was kind of a, you know, an example of the, the kind of sociopathic behavior or tendencies that you might see in informants. But what we can say very definitively is that by and large, although there are exceptions of 
people who volunteer to be informants out of patriotism. Separate from that minority of informants, most informants are doing informant work for the money because they can make a lot of money. And these are also people who have criminal records, have pretty checkered paths, have plenty of reason not to be viewed as credible. But for the FBI, they are quite useful because not only are they able to play the part of to insert themselves into the criminal organization or, or whatever community the FBI is investigating, but they are driven by money. And so they will be willing to push things along, go along with the things that the FBI wants to do because they know that's how they get paid. And there really aren't any safeguards in place at the FBI to really um, you know, make sure that an informant isn't encouraging people or facilitating crimes solely out of financial interest. Because in some ways, that aligns with the FBI's interest. The FBI wants arrests, wants convictions, wants prosecutions, all of the metrics that traditional law enforcement measures itself by. Informants really allow the FBI to, to do that. And so in, in some ways, it's kind of this corrupt marriage between the FBI looking to build cases and informants that with, with a wink and a nod, mm -hmm. you know, are going to do whatever needs to be done to make that case happen because they're going to make a lot of money as a result. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you now two questions that uh, I think, uh, I think Trevor are two sides of the same coin, but let me, let me pose them and, and you tell me. The first question I want to ask is how frightened we should be. That is to say, fellow citizens, how frightened we should be uh, of our own FBI. And I ask that given what we discussed earlier in this conversation, number one, that, we see an increasing number of American citizens signing up to be FBI informants. So they're, they're watching you, they're watching me, they're watching our neighbors, our friends, our families. Um, that's one reason why I'm asking this question, how frightened we ought to be of our own FBI. And secondly, the point you made that the FBI is replicating the curation, the, the curating of these terrorism stings using these tactics, not just to, to stop terrorism, but to infiltrate uh, peaceful protests like those put on by BLM or, or other uh, groups in this country. So both of those factoids, that they're infiltrating people, that the number of informants are growing significantly, both of those factors lead me to ask how frightened you think we should be of our FBI. I, I think it's healthy to have some fear. I, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the FBI is that the FBI has been very good at cultivating its image and popular culture throughout the history of this country. If you look at the way the FBI is portrayed in movies and TV shows, the FBI is seen as this almost perfect agency with you know, agents wearing the white hats and, and doing good for everyone. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the real history of the FBI, the FBI has historically had a very corrosive impact on American culture and society, I would argue. And that, you know, the FBI that we're seeing today is more reminiscent of the FBI of the 1960s under J. Edgar Hoover than ever before, in that the FBI is, has an enormous mass surveillance apparatus, including these 15,000 informants, and is clearly willing to investigate people based on First Amendment protected activities, is interested in looking for people that are, quote unquote, extremists, and then investigating them. And I think that the, the fear should be in who defines what's an extremist, because what we know is that the FBI viewed uh, racial justice activists during the summer of 2020 as extremists, and that's what justified those investigations. And I think the most troubling place the FBI can be is where it's interfering with First Amendment protected activities and political discourse and activism. And we are seeing that now with the FBI in a way that's very scarily reminiscent of the 1960s un under COINTELPRO. And so, you know, I'm certainly not one of these people that says we, sh we should get rid of police, we should get rid of all federal law enforcement. But I think what we need is a healthy dose of fear of these agencies and as a result, a very vigilant 
um, level of accountability at Congress and, and elsewhere, including in the media um, of these organizations. Mm. Te, uh, Trevor Aronson's uh, TED Talk in 2015 uh, called How the FBI Strategy is Actually Creating U.S.-Based Terrorists has been viewed more than a million times. Uh, and for that matter, has been translated now into 23 languages. So he um, is a source that people rely on uh, for tracking and uh, the behavior of the FBI, uh, the antics of the FBI, and understanding better what they're doing uh, in um, in this moment in history. Um, when we come forward, the flip side um, uh, of that coin uh, I mentioned a moment ago that I want to probe is is the following. So he's written this book called The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. And I suspect uh, there are many in this country, perhaps some listening to this program right now, who say, Trevor, I don't really care. I don't care what their tactics are. I don't care whether the war on terrorism is manufactured or not. I don't care that they're curating these terrorism stings and using tactics um, to, uh, uh, to infiltrate uh, various groups so long. As they stop another 9-11 from happening inside this country, I really don't care what their tactics are, number one. And number two, if you ain't got nothing to hide, you shouldn't be scared of the FBI. What a silly question Tavis just asked, how frightened we should be of the FBI. Well, Negro, if you ain't doing nothing, (laughs) what's there to be scared of in the first place? I want to get Trevor's take on both of those things when we come forward and continue our conversation with Trevor Aronson on KBLA Talk 15. How do you respond, Trevor Aronson, to persons who say the following? You call it a terror factory. I call it keeping us safe by any means necessary. I ain't doing nothing, so I ain't got nothing to be worried about or to hide from when the FBA comes uh, looking into my business. And frankly, uh, as long as their tactics keep us safe, they uh, keep us uh, uh, from having another 9-11 happen uh, inside these shores, I really don't care, Trevor. So I say two things. So, so one is that I think for everyone who says, well, this doesn't affect me, uh, why should I be concerned about it? I think the lesson that we can draw from that is that eventually it may affect you if you don't speak up about it or pay attention to it when it's happening to others. So for everyone who is like, I'm not a terrorist, I'm not Muslim, what's the concern here? Well, we can fast forward 20 years to the summer of 2020, and we see that these same tactics and the use of informants that were used during the war on terrorism were applied against racial justice activists during the summer of 2020. So any of those activists who 15 years earlier were saying, well, this doesn't affect me, learned a lesson that it does, that in time these tactics are used against other groups if they're allowed to persist in more vulnerable populations. And that's really been, you know, a larger history of FBI, or excuse me, law enforcement abuse of, of powers. The other thing that I would point out is that I think that we can raise a lot of questions and significant ones about whether the FBI's tactics in this particular case really were stopping the real risk. So, for example, what we saw was through the use of these sting operations, a huge exaggeration of the threat of terrorism from within Muslim communities in the United States, such that when Donald Trump ran for office in 2016, he was able to tap into this kind of Islamophobia by, you know, threatening to ban Muslims coming into the country for fear that there was more terrorism uh, at play. While the FBI was doing this in those two decades after 9-11, it was largely turning a blind eye to what we now very clearly see as a rising tide of violent right-wing extremism and far-right violence, such that you know, as the FBI was so focused on Islamist terrorism, they were really not willing to confront the the rising tide of right-wing violence with the force that I think was needed and the, the attention that I think was needed. So I think in, in, we can also question whether this is, in fact, finding the real threats or if it's just finding the threats that the FBI 
wants to focus on and will manufacture in the absence of those threats. Hmm. So when we come forward in our remaining moments with uh, Trevor Aronson, I want to ask this as perhaps the exit question. Who knows? Maybe there'll be one or two more. Um, but, the, but, the, but the penultimate question, it seems to me, is uh, are we any safer? Are we as American citizens any safer after 9-11, given the work that the FBI has and continues to do? Uh, Trevor calls it a terror factory. He calls it uh, a manufactured war on terrorism. Um, but it does beg the question uh, as to whether or not we are any safer after 9-11. Uh, I guess that depends in part on how you define the word safe. I can hear Trevor thinking out loud already. <laughs> depends on how you define the word safe, Tavis. Uh, I'm sure he'll give me uh, that as a part of his response, but I, I'm anxious to hear what he has to say uh, in response to that question. When we come forward in our remaining moments with the author of the book, The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism, Contributing writer for The Intercept, Trevor Aronson, who you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 15. Trevor Aronson, you call it a manufactured war on ter- terrorism that the uh, FBI is engaged in. I guess the, the question is whether or not um, we are, after 9-11, any safer in America these days. Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer because it's, it's a hard thing to measure. Yeah. But what we can say definitively is that, you know, if you look at the counterterrorism sting operations that the FBI ran post 9-11, None of those cases involved anyone who was on the verge of committing some sort of attack that, you know, had a garage filled, filled with explosives and was about to bomb it, bomb someplace, and then the FBI stepped in. At the same time, what we know from two previous um, attacks, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing and the Pulse shooting in Orlando, Florida, for example, the FBI had investigated both of those assailants prior to the attacks and had deemed them not a terrorism threat and essentially let them let them go. Mm. And so I think it raises questions about the effectiveness of the FBI's kind of profiling and understanding who the threats will be um, as a result. So I think we can point to that and say that there are significant problems in the FBI's ability to predict who will be you know, a, a future terrorist, so to speak. That said, though, I think it's worth acknowledging that the FBI's job is incredibly difficult. How do you predict who are going to commit these attacks? How do you stop every every attack? And I, and I think what we have to acknowledge is that if we lived in a world or a country where every attack was stopped before it could happen, that probably isn't a, a society you want to live in. That's a society where there's no privacy rights, there's very little civil liberties. And, and I think, you know, a part of living in an open society like the U.S. is an acknowledgement that there will be that trade-off, that unfortunately mm-hmm. there, may, there may be attacks and there may be violent things that happen that we are just unable to stop given, you know, the freedoms that we allow American citizens rightfully to have. And I think that's the trade-off that we need to think about when we think about security. It still begs the obvious question for me, which is uh, how one does, in fact, go about reeling in an out-of-control FBI. You said more than once in this conversation that the FBI today operates in many ways the same way they did during COINTELPRO back in the day. And that's that's scary for some of us to even consider, uh, much less accept um, so how does one go about reeling in an out-of-control FBI? I, I think what we need is, is more media coverage of these issues. I think we also, most importantly, need a Congress that is willing to look at the FBI, you know, in, in, in a way that isn't through a partisan lens. You know, right now, for example, Jim Jordan, the Republican from Ohio, is running a subcommittee that is looking at the supposed weaponization of the FBI. But the narrative that he wants to create is that the FBI only targets right-wing groups and only abuses right-wing uh, political activists. And that's just not true. You know, he, this committee has sometimes been referred to as the new church committee, but it is not that in any way. And I, I think I, I would argue that I think it's time for a new church committee, that we need serious 
um, elected officials who are willing to take a very holistic and deep look at the FBI, using subpoena power, calling witnesses, and really come to understand what the FBI's power is, what safeguards are in place to prevent the abuse of that power, and how that power is being abused and how it could be, could be, cured, could be curved. That's what we had in the Church Committee in 1975. And I think, you know, what, um, you know, nearly 50 years later, I think it's, it's about time for maybe another one. As you're saying that, uh, I'm nodding my head in agreement, Trevor, and yet I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to process who, on the right or the left, for that matter, would be willing to take on that assignment, given what you said earlier in this conversation, which I find to be true, that if you did that, you can fully expect that you're going to get Liz Cheney when you run for re-election again. Absolutely. And that's what makes this, this problem so vexing, that, that it is politically inconvenient and unpopular to take on these issues. And, um, and so I'm hopeful that maybe we can find a way, but I don't, I don't see any, um, any short-term solutions or short-term avenues where you could have the level of accountability for the FBI that I think it really deserves. Yeah. Because clearly, you know, for the last 20 years, that's really what's been lacking as far as oversight. He's a contributing writer for The Intercept. He is the host of the very popular podcast, The Alphabet Boys. And his new book is called The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. He is Trevor Aronson. Trevor, thank you for your work, number one. I know it takes a lot to uncover these kinds of things, a lot of, a lot of digging, a lot of researching. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your witness. Thank you for this conversation. Good to have you on, my friend. Thank you, Thomas. I appreciate it. My great delight. Hour three of Tab is Smiley. After news, traffic, and sports.